If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. The notion that there is no self has won over philosophers and scientists since Hume argued that the self is nothing but a bundle of perceptions. So is our experience of a unified continuous self merely illusory? And if the self does exist, how should it be understood? Joining us remotely to ask whether the self is an illusion is author of Self and Other, Dan Zahavi, philosophy professor at the University of Birmingham, Lisa Bortolotti, and research fellow at the Future of Humanity Institute, Anders Sandberg. And I think what is going on is that there are some illusions that are so practical that we might actually say they are the fictions we build the world from. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to our host for this week's debate, Joanna Cavenna. So I'll start with the opening question and I'll begin by posing it to Lisa Bortolotti. Lisa, for three minutes, is the self an illusion? Thank you. Okay, thank you. So when we ask whether the self is an illusion, we may be asking whether the self exists, but also whether it is different from what we expect it to be. We expect the self to persist in a flow of emotions, thoughts, memories. There is one subject who perceives reality as feelings and forms ideas, keeping track, albeit imperfectly, of how the things develop. We do recognize that we undergo some substantial transformations during our lives. And this could be physical or psychological. And often the stories that we tell about ourselves are stories of those transformations. For instance, how we learned to overcome adversities. But even if we embrace the fact that the self inevitably evolves, we have a sense that the self is characterized by stable traits that are typical of us and explain our behavior such as generosity and determination. And these traits are largely responsible for the choices that we make. And because um, these choices are determined by these traits, they are largely coherent. They are an expression of who we really are. So I submit that this sense of ourselves as having stable traits and making coherent choices is largely an illusion. In a fascinating study on choice blindness, people are asked to rate the level of agreement with a policy statement before a general election. 
such as I agree with, and then the statement, for instance, it's more important for society to promote welfare than to protect personal integrity. When participants are asked to provide reasons for their choices, the interviewer presents them with the same rating they actually offered, I agree with, but combined with the reverse statement. So it is more important for society to protect personal integrity than to promote welfare. So participants are asked reasons for their opposite opinion to the one they expressed only moments earlier. Rather than detecting the change, most participants just go on to explain their ratings, and they are as articulate and convincing as participants who are not subject to the same manipulation. The best interpretation of the results is that we change our minds, even about things that we should care about, when relevant features of the environment change. For instance, when we're subject to experimental manipulation. If made to believe that we endorsed a certain policy statement, we proceed to offer reasons to believe in the merits of that statement. Not because we have a pre-existing preference for it, but because we strive for coherence and stability. Notice that we change our minds without realizing that we do in these cases. Although ourselves are more fickle than we would like them to be, the illusion that we are discerning agents and competent decision makers with stable preferences projects a confidence that is socially rewarded and uh, enables us to impose some coherence on those choices that we actually consciously deliberate about. Thank you. Thanks very much, Lisa. I'll now turn to Anders Sandberg with the same question. Anders, is the self an illusion for three minutes? Thank you. So I think the self is an illusion, but of course there is an I in that sentence. Already by saying that, I'm kind of undermining what was being said there. And I think what is going on is that there are some illusions that are so practical that we might actually say they are the fictions we build the world from. After all, most material objects, when you scrutinize them with a physicist's eye, they're just fields of uh, electrons and quanta. But practically, they're very solid. And the physicist would say, yeah, 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 of course, you, you can interact with that thing, which is actually a complicated quantum thing. But on this scale of description, when we're talking about uh, mugs, it makes sense to talk about it as something you find. Similarly, much of the time, it makes sense to talk about ourselves as having selves, having a fairly stable set of preferences, personality. Part of the reason is we are the kind of thing that are somewhat separate from the surroundings. Indeed, biology has been working very hard to keep us separate from our surroundings. We have a skin which is very elaborate in keeping bacteria, parasites, and noxious things out, and keeping our lovely nutrients on the inside. We have an immune system that works very hard on figuring out, does this thing belong here? And if not, let's remove it with extreme prejudice. Indeed, you could argue that the oldest concept of self is actually the immune system. It tries to identify things that don't fit in with other things that normally exist in the body using a fairly elaborate uh, training system that tries to find a vast diversity of shapes and, uh, to look for and then removes those shapes uh, of uh, antibodies and antigen surfaces that correspond to something that exists in the body. Otherwise, we would get autoimmune disorders. But then we have a system that, as soon as something weird shows up, it attacks it as non-self. Similarly, our brains 
being land-living mammals that have to react, we need certain reactions. At that point, we construct maybe a virtual representation of the body. Just like we have a representation of things in our surroundings, we need a representation of this body. And then we humans, of course, by ladling on more and more frontal lobe, get a more and more elaborate model of the self. We add on bells and whistles, both ideas about what this thing is. We do self-reflection, which really confounds things. And then we go and uh, read a philosophy course and get amazingly confused. And uh, sometimes we think we're enlightened about it. But what is really going on is representations of systems, which are, when you start looking at them carefully with the philosophers of psychology, rather fussy. But that illusion is kind of useful one. It's a little bit uh, like money. You could say money is just pieces of paper or a social agreement. Yeah, but it's very useful. I can go to the store and actually get goods by waving this piece of social agreement. Uh, and I can be fairly certain that illusion will indeed bring me a loaf of bread or a cup of tea. So I do think that the self is an illusion, but it's one of those sticky illusions that fake it till you make it. It's so good and, and useful in many domains that it actually seems like it's real. Great, thank you, Anders. Um, let me turn now to Dan Zahavi with the same question. Dan, is the self an illusion for three minutes? Thank you. So my short answer is no. Uh, the slightly longer answer is that I don't really think the question makes that much sense. And I don't think it makes much sense because it seems to assume that we all know exactly what we mean by self. I mean, that seems to be a requirement in order for us to determine whether or not it's an illusion. But I think that the notion of self is very equivocal. It can mean a lot of different things in different contexts. And if one is, for instance, looking at the current debate, people are talking about the experiential self, the ecological self, the embodied self, the narrative self, the social self, the private self. And so again, the question is, which of these are we talking about when asking whether the self is an illusion? Now, I think there are ways of thinking about the self where it's absolutely indispensable if we wish to provide a proper account, not only of experience and phenomenal consciousness, but also of sociality and communal life. I think a fundamental notion or dimension of selfhood is connected to the very subjectivity of our experiential life. Experiences are not typically unowned or anonymous. They're characterized by a first personal dimension. Experiences are like something for me. And to insist that this subjective anchoring is an illusion strikes me as being about as meaningful as claiming that experience per se are illusory. I also think that a proper account of groups and communities requires an appeal to selves. As Martin Buber once put it, by we, I mean a community of several independent persons who have reached a self and self-responsibility. So to think of a we is to think of a first-person plural phenomenon. And if there is no I, no first-person perspective, no self, there is no we either. So the point I'm trying to make is that the claim that the self is illusory has actually quite a number of implications. Uh, I also think that people who typically deny the reality of the self are defining it in a way that is metaphysically extremely demanding. They often think of the self as some kind of unchanging soul substance, 
But I think that this way of thinking about the self has very little relation to how most philosophers and social scientists have been thinking about it for the last 150 years. And first, uh, finally, just one, one brief remark. I mean, the, uh, the title of this panel discussion is actually a little bit odd because the title is, Are You an Illusion? And that, of course, seems to suggest that the real topic that we should be discussing is solipsism, which it isn't. I mean, um, but I would want to make the claim and I would urge us not to forget that if I am an illusion, I mean, you are as well. And of course, that just points out that I have a hard time seeing how one could preserve a proper notion of community if one uh, did away with, with the notion of self. Thank you very much. That's great. Um, and you also pointed to the next area that we're going to discuss, which is really to try and define what we mean by self. If we're affirming or denying uh, the existence of something, then it would help if we could all understand what it was. And Dan, I mean, thinking about what you were saying um, about this idea that, you know, that when we speak of an illusion, we can be speaking about something that doesn't exist, but we can also be speaking about something that isn't quite what it seems, as you said, that isn't fixed and absolutely continuous in time. I mean, is that a way that we could actually agree, it sounds like, on a definition of the self, that it's just not quite what we've all built it or been encouraged to bill it as? Well, I mean, I would be far happier with some of the self uh, uh, skeptics, if, if what they were saying was the following, there is a certain type of self that we don't believe exists. I don't have a problem with that, of course, but the problem is whether any plausible notion of self have to go, and I, I just have to say that I find that extremely uh, implausible. But let me pick up on one thing, and I think that leads back to something that Anas was saying, because I think there's, I mean, there's, you know, one thing that we should also think about is what do we mean by reality? Uh, and so here, here's one consideration. I mean, some, for some people, you know, being a self is very much uh, an accomplishment. It's something that comes about by endorsing specific normative commitments. It's by leading a life uh, in accordance with certain, you know, ideals. And so on this account, the self is, is not a given. It's rather something developing. It's something changing. It's partly at least a social uh, construction. And the question, of course, is, Let's assume that, that that's one notion of self. Should we, are we then warranted in, in then arguing that it's an illusion? I mean, there are so many things that are extremely important to us, which makes up the reality that we care about and live in, that are socially constructed. And I mean, I see no reason to claim that they should be illusory unless we have, have a, had a prior commitment to some very austere, reductive, type of metaphysics, which have no appeal to me whatsoever. So I think it's just that when talking about whether something is an illusion, we also perhaps have to, to look at the other side of it. I mean, what do we mean by, by reality? Yes, I mean, that's so we could kind of debate that for five million years, as well as the self equally. These are enormous themes that we're trying to kind of race through. Um, I wanted to ask, I mean, Lisa, you were talking about narrative structure. And I wondered about, so are you saying if the kind of that notion of the absolute self, the discrete self unchanging is not um, real, is the narrative structure then real or is it a, a fabulation of the individual? Yeah, I think the point I was trying to make, which was very implicit in what I was saying, is very similar to what Dan has just expressed. So 
something doesn't need to be a physical entity to be real, right? There are so many things that are real that have causal effects um, and that make a difference to our lives, which are not uh, physical entities that we can locate in a specific space. So my, I, my sense is that we cannot really say very much about the self as a physical or metaphysical entity. So in a way, I'm kind of sympathizing here with uh, Daniel Dennett's position where he was um, uh, expressing this beautiful metaphor where the self is like the center of gravity. We don't actually see the center of gravity, but what we see is what effects it has, right? What it does and what it does matters to a number of things. So what I prefer to focus on, rather than this mysterious thing that we don't know really <laughs> where to find, is the sense of self. So what we take ourselves to be. And that is very close to the narrative self. Now, not always what we take ourselves to be needs to be, um, needs to be a narrative um, or needs to be in, in the structure of a series of events uh, that have kind of relation, causal relations uh, among each other. But it's certainly a way of interpreting our behavior in a way that is economical, useful, and it makes sense to us as meaning for us. So, for instance, the sense of self to me, just very, very briefly, is, is an answer to two main questions. Which person am I? And what type of person am I? So I want to know more or less who I am. So maybe when I was born, who my parents are. But also I want to know what characterizes me as opposed to other people. So maybe personality traits or psychological dispositions, whether I'm good at playing football, whether I like philosophy. So it seems to me that if we have that sense of self, where we identify ourselves with a number of characteristics um, that then uh, play a role in our narratives, in the way in which we describe our lives, in which we tell stories to other people, um, then what really matters to them is kind of autobiographical information that we get from memory, maybe introspection, but also observation of our own behavior, what other people say about us. And that all contributes to creating a preserving of sense of self which is real, I think, even if it's you know, not something physical that we can locate somewhere, but that we end up um, characterizing in a way that may be quite different from how other people see us. I mean, so I just want to put this to Anders, because Anders, you made a, in part a physical defense of the self. You said there are biologically discrete entities and the immune system knows that something's from elsewhere. I mean, would you then contend with this idea that something doesn't have to be physical to be real? Or is this also something that could exist within your argument? Yeah, I, I'm certainly fine with non-physical things being real. After all, Santa Claus doesn't exist out there, but uh, he exists in our minds, and that has an enormous effect over uh, Christmas time. Um, and I think many of the, the kind of more subtle things that we tend to discuss in philosophy, they do only exist inside our own minds, but they're very important things. Conversely, the discreteness of us as organisms is partially an illusion. Uh, people these days love bringing up our gut flora, which is actually uh, a vast number of cells and probably not just important for our well-being, but even participating to some extent in our personality, which is uh, a slightly unsettling thought. My thoughts are not entirely due to these mammalian cells, but also uh, some kind of complicated uh, democracy of bacteria and viruses in my guts. 
And that's something that is probably going to be tricky in it, except, except that, of course, most of the thoughts we deal with in the philosophy department tend to be not terribly influenced by the gut and more by talking and existing between people. But again, now we get this slightly disturbing thought. How many of these ideas are mine and how many are copies or variations I picked up by hanging around the philosophy department? Yes, so, and yeah. we're speaking in a language, aren't we? Which is, I mean, it's giving us these concepts and it exists beyond the self. So is that a kind of, I mean, already there's a sort of merged self, is there in language? So humans are really interesting because we can form group intentions. Uh, this is relatively unique, actually. Certainly many other animals are good at forming uh, flocks and uh, <laughs> the tribes, but humans can sit down before a hunt and decide, okay, tomorrow we are going to go hunting. They use language for that. Not only that, they can make a plan. Uh, George, you go over there, and uh, Jim, you go over there, and afterwards we're going to split the spoils if we get any this way. So we can even have an intention about future state and the future situation in order to create better cooperation. This is super important. And again, there is this practical use here of being able to distinguish each other, even though sometimes people, uh, my, we, uh, we talk about groups as if they were individuals. And our minds are probably pretty good lumping things together when needed and sometimes splitting it apart. Yeah. So our language is really shaping this, and it's much more convenient to talk about uh, distinct objects than having these fussy, complicated network entities. Yes, Dan, I can see you want to come in, and I had a question as well. You can respond to Anders. And yeah, well, I guess it's just, I mean, just in order to avoid uh, the, the illusion that we're all agreeing here. I mean, because I, I don't really think that I'm agreeing with either, actually, with both of you, uh, because I would find it very problematic to kind of align or compare our sense of self with, with Santa Claus. I mean, even if Santa Claus might have all kinds of effects on toy industry production, I mean, he is very much a specific cultural artifact. And I mean, I think the role I would want to give to, to selves is much, much more fundamental. I think it's cross-cultural. I don't think it's a invention of the Renaissance, like Foucault was claiming. I mean, so I, so I think, so I'm a little bit disturbed by that uh, comparison. And I, and I also would want to say, I mean, you have both spoken about language, but I say, okay, wait a second. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not denying that language can make an important role, but what about infants? What about animals? And I mean, on my, my accounts, I don't have any problem whatsoever ascribing selfhood of a certain type to both pre-linguistic infants nor to animals as long as they are in possession of phenomenal consciousness. So again, there might be some, some issues here that has to be sorted out in, in, in some way. Yes, Lisa, briefly, I mean, before we enter into another part of the debate, but would you like to respond? Can we equate the self with Santa Claus in a... Yeah, I think I'm probably a little bit in between <laughs> Dan and Anders. So um, I do think... Um, that the self um, is not, you know, something physical that you can locate somewhere. At the same time, uh, I don't think it is exactly like Santa Claus. Uh, to me, Santa Claus is a bit like the fictional character. And, and that's where I guess uh, my position differs from the one uh, by Dan Dennett, where he talks about the center of gravity, because he ends up 
thinking of the self as a, as a fiction. So I don't think it's a fiction. I think it's real, just another sense of real from, you know, the sense in which my lamp is real. And I also agree that you don't need to be a complex, a sophisticated linguistic creature in order to have a self. You can have a self um, in, in the sense that I was um, uh, describing, having a sense of who you are, even if you are unable to actually articulate complex sentences about where you're from or what your main characteristics are. Um, so I guess the trick is to try and think, you know, for myself, the way that I make sense of the notion of, of self is what does it do for me? What is it that before having a sense of self, I could not make sense of, and now it's becoming clearer, and I can kind of explain and make predictions and coordinate with other, um, other beings. And, and, and the sense of self does that for me um, to an extent. Uh, now, of course, it could be that the idea that I get of my sense of self is very different from the idea of, um, you know, that other people get of me given what I do and how I express myself or how I behave. Um, so that is where I think the illusion might come in, that my way of characterizing myself is actually not the same as, you know, kind of an intersubjective uh, shared conception of who Lisa is. And that, that is where I think distortions and biases might come in. Yes, I see. Okay, let's move into the next area of the debate, which is, as you've cited already, in terms of what does the self do for me, um, this question of if we completely dispense with the notion that the self is a reality and we say that it's illusory, what would reality be like? Uh, there's a kind of paradoxical question. And actually, I want to start with that paradox. Um, I mean, Anders, if I turn to you, if we decide that the self is an illusion, then surely the statement that the self is an illusion has been pronounced by an illusory self. So therefore, it's an illusion. And don't we just all run around in a kind of chaos then at that point? Well, there are still experiences going on. Uh, it's just that uh, who they belong to become slightly more problematic. So I'm reminded of a beautiful passage in my former landlord, Derek Parfit's uh, work. Uh, it's kind of amusing to have a great philosopher as your landlord because you never talk philosophy with him. You only talk about that boiler is broken again. But I really vividly remember that passage <clears throat> where he points out that he, he kind of disproven personal identity. And he argues that that's kind of nice. Suddenly, the end of my life is no longer that problematic. The walls are falling down, and one can just have general compassion. And the interesting part here is, of course, that's personal identity. And the proper philosophy say, hey, and there is personal identity and selfhood are slightly different in an important way. Selfhood is, after all, being somebody. And we might uh, still have no personal identity, but still maintain some self but it seems to me that you could, in principle, have a world where we're not so hung up about who we are, defining a lot of the senses of self we normally do, and get rid of them. There are still maybe important aspects of subjectivity that uh, one should care about. It might very well be that suffering is bad no matter what has it, and with that should, we should get rid of that from the universe, all beings that can do that should aim at getting rid of the excessive and pointless suffering and bringing in joy, for example. But there's also a tremendous amount of stupid stuff we do because we tell us, oh, I'm the kind of person who buys that. Oh, I'm not the kind of person who does that. And 
usually when I find myself thinking a thought like that, I reflect on it and realize, yeah, if I didn't involve that, I'm not, or I am the kind, then I would say, that's just an irrational position. It seems to trip us up all the time. So getting over at least that part of self seems to be super useful and adaptive. Yes. I mean, Dan, Dan, I know you want to come in and I want to ask you, I mean, don't we already have an example of millions of people who live, I mean, if we look at Buddhism, I mean, you know, the denial of the self is very fundamental to Buddhism. And obviously that's not adopting a materialist view. That's, I mean, very much, you know, a kind of notion, almost a relief from suffering because the world is hard. And I mean, surely then we have an example of an entire uh, mode of living where the self is at least not absolutely fundamental, it is actively denied. No, 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 that's good because that, I wanted to bring that up uh, by okay. myself as well. So, 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 I think, so, so I think, I mean, one point, one thing just quickly is, I mean, I really don't think that we should conflate this with, I mean, this, this discussion about, about materialism. I think materialism is kind of compatible with all kinds of views, and you can't say if you're materialist, you have necessarily to buy into the view that there is no self. So I think it's a little bit of a, of a, of a red herring. But, but, but the thing I wanted to say was that, um, uh, so, so I, I have actually had, I, I, I have actually been in, engaged in discussions with Buddhist scholars for, for quite some years because, of course, they typically take the opposite view of me concerning the existence of, of selfhood. And one thing that I've often pressed them about, and, and, and this is the idea I would like to briefly share with you, is the following. I mean, if you really uh, buy into the idea that there is no self, how can you then at the same time uh, promote uh, uh, and, and valueize the notion of empathy and compassion. And I don't understand that at all, quite frankly, because for me, empathy is very much about being other-directed. It's a specific kind of concern for the other or interest in the other. Likewise, compassion is not about... I mean, compassion is precisely having a concern with somebody else. And I don't understand how one can talk about all these authors if one at the same time, uh, you know, want to eradicate the notion of, uh, of selfhood. So I think both compassion and empathy necessarily requires the preservation of, of plurality. And, and my concern is that if we do away with the, with the self, it's very hard to keep on to a, a, a meaningful conception of uh, uh, of, of plurality. And then I think one thing, and, and then I'll, I'll stop just, I mean, one possible reply now, and this, by, this, this goes a little bit along what, what Anas was, was saying was, well, perhaps what we need to get rid of is, uh, is, uh, uh, is this idea of a very, you know, persistent, unchanging uh, self, but we, perhaps we can stick to, to a notion of subjectivity, and I know some Buddhists got, because there's, of course, also all kinds of disagreements within Buddhism. I mean, all kinds of different positions. Some are really hardcore, you know, consciousness, even consciousness is an illusion. Others want to say, no, no, consciousness is really real. And there's subjectivity. And in the moment, you know, that that's a kind of diachronic, no, sorry, that's a, that's a kind of a synchronic identity, but there's no diachronic identity. So we can get rid of the self and keep subjectivity. And then perhaps we can have the kind of plurality that, that Anas was saying. But I'm a little bit suspicious about that because I think that, you know, again, you can, you can talk about the self and just talk about synchronic identity. And I mean, a very well-known figure who has been proposing that view is, of course, Galen Strawson with his very short-lived selves. And I mean, he's a 
as much of a pro-selfer as you can find. And again, he doesn't believe in the continuing existence of selfhood. So again, I mean, I guess this is also just to say that that has a lot of kind of conceptual issues and confusions. And sometimes you can have these discussions with people and think you disagree. And it turns out that you have been talking about completely different topics all along. But Lisa, I'm going to put some of those arguments to you about empathy. And also, I was thinking about you work on the idea of delusions and that sometimes they have pragmatic benefits. And I mean, if we have no sense of a self, and do we therefore lose these ideas of free will, free will of um, owning our decisions of volition, as we've been hearing? Um, and so therefore, in a sense, we no longer take responsibility for our actions. I mean, is that something that you're dealing with, with your narrative view? of self because then we we have to account for things earlier in our narrative or is there a danger that we do lose that sense of volition and self-determination okay so that's a very good and difficult question um because my uh, main idea is that the self exists in some way but is different from what we expect it to be um, these has consequences for the implications for moral responsibility as well so because we think that most of our choices are determined by who we really are, our deep-seated uh, attitudes that make up uh, our individualities and almost in an essentialist way, we also tend to think that everything we do comes from us and it is to some extent our responsibility. Um, now, of course, there are biases affecting that. So when it comes to our own failure, we're very happy to ascribe um, the responsibility for, for what has happened to some, somebody else or, or some external event. But when it happens to other people, we are very ready um, to say, OK, they had it coming. You know, it was because that's what they wanted, because they did this two years ago and this now has happened to them. So that, I think, is not an entirely... Um, implausible way of thinking, but it's exaggerating the kind of coherence and also causal efficacy of ourselves. Given that our choices are very rarely only determined by who we really are, our beliefs, aspirations and desires, but they are very much in uh, hostage to features of our environment, environmental cues that we might not even be aware of, that also means that our responsibility for the things that we do is diminished. It's not inexistent because, of course, there is a bit of us in there, but uh, it's just one causal factor among many other causal factors that we may not be able to control. And I think this becomes really important when we think about people who struggle with their mental health and might have either beliefs or desires or behavioral dispositions that lead them to perform actions that other people do not understand or sometimes that may be harmful to themselves or others. That I think it's really important to think of responsibility as a graded notion. It doesn't very much make sense to me to say that person is fully responsible, that person is not responsible. I think there is some responsibility in what we do because there is a sense in which some of what we think about and some, some of what we desire gets into our behavior. But that's just part of the picture. And so really the question should be, to what extent are you responsible? Is there anything you can do to stop yourself from doing that? And I think when we have that picture, we also lose this kind of really sharp, neat distinction between the mentally well, 
who is always responsible for what he or she does, and the mentally unwell, who is completely lost, hostage to uh, pulsions or obsessions or delusions. It doesn't work like that. You know, it's, it's just a continuum. Yes, can I just bring in Anders? Are we hostage to pulsions and is Santa Claus also hostage? I mean, where, what, what, what's going on, do you, do you feel? <clears throat> so, so one important realization of the past hundred years of psychology and neuroscience is, of course, we have parts. And even if one claims that we have a self, uh, the, the, it still seems that it has parts. And these parts don't necessarily have to fit together and, uh, in a perfect, coherent uh, fashion. In fact, many of the interesting quirks of our minds are because the, they are not always working in a, a perfect uh, sync. It, quite often, indeed, different parts are in direct conflict. Indeed, when we construct our narrative self, we quite often have slightly different objectives. We want uh, them to look good and contain everything, but also be truthful. And then uh, we uh, add more and more constraints. And the end result is, of course, over-constrained. So we need to find some solution that gets us through the day. So what is happening is, of course, that most of the time we have enough flexibility to function. I think one of the most notable things about mental illness is the lack of flexibility. Delusions are interesting because people have them and they refuse to drop them, even though the evidence is totally against them. Perhaps uh, the most uh, disturbing delusion about selfhood is Cotard's delusion, where people think they are dead or don't exist. And it's so obviously contradicted by everything is happening, <clears throat> but tragically, they persist in <clears throat> maintaining this. And I think that is an important lesson for the rest of us. Okay, we might not be that far gone, but we certainly have other things we insist on holding, even though evidence might be against it. Um, just as we almost run out of time, we're going to turn to the mighty hard problem of consciousness um, and the claims, I guess, that neuroscience have made that it might be able to uh, shine a light on this through um, analysing the brain. Now, I realise this is rather a move from what you were talking about, but let me ask you, um, within a philosophical tradition, I mean, this isn't new, is it? Hippocrates said that all joys, delights, laughter came from the brain. Hobbes and Priestley argued that thinking was a result of arrangements of parts of matter. I mean, you actually argued earlier um, that, you know, there was a very important material aspect to the parameters of the self. Um, so if we're looking just at the end of this debate about neuroscience within this discussion, is it doing anything new? Is it not part of a particular philosophical tradition, really? Well, I'm kind of on the side of Aristotle. I do think that <clears throat> the mind results from the arrangement of the body, etc. It's the form of our thinking, etc. The problem is, of course, how to actually turn this into a proper scientific or philosophical argument. And I find that very hard. The hard problem of consciousness is a hard problem. Partially, even because neuroscientists are all too eager to run off to the uh, brain imaging machine, uh, do some experiment to see some parts of the brain get activated and con conclude that's where consciousness is, making all the philosophers in the room groan, of course. Then the, <clears throat> the neuroscientists turn to the philosophers and say, so what should we be looking for instead? And that turns into a rather tricky question. I think we're rather far away from understanding this. Uh, on some days, uh, days, I'm just panpsychist because it's a lazy position. Everything is conscious. It's just that we have brains that make a big deal out of consciousness. On other days, I say, no, no, that seems to be uh, too lazy. 
But how brains generate consciousness or a subjectivity, I have no clue about. What we do know is, of course, that there is biological factors that are really important. Um, affect the parietal lobe in the right way, and people's sense of self dissolves. You can get mystical experience where we're feeling unified with the universe. They don't exist. It's just then everything that exists. And then they come back from that and they can tell the story. So certainly there are ways of using biology and neuroscience to figure out important things about the self, but this is early days. We haven't started thinking about it very recently. Yes, Dan, I want to bring you in. Do you think um, neuroscience can solve this problem? Can philosophers all sort of relax a bit? Um, and I mean, I, I, you know, at some point I did look at some of, I mean, you can of course find very uh, strong claims made by some neuroscientists. Uh, I mean, I remember reading some articles claiming that uh, now it had been determined that we had found where the self was located in the brain. It was in the right hemisphere and they were basing this on specific kind of experimental paradigms. Uh, what was kind of at least pretty unsettling for me as a philosopher was that there was a, at no point where they actually spent any time defining what they meant by self. I mean, I, I, I mean and there's a lot of stuff out there basically making the same kind of, uh, of move. And of course, that's not convincing because as I already said, I mean, there are so many different notions of self in, in place. And so what exactly is it that we are trying to identify the location of um, so, so, so I think, I mean, you know, and I, so I, I guess two things. I mean, first of all, I don't really think that neuroscience is in a position to tell us that the self is an illusion. Just that I, I don't think that neuroscience is in a position to tell us that nation states are an illusion or that the refugee crisis is an illusion. I mean, I, I just think it's a kind of a strange task to give neuroscience to prove that. Secondly, I would say, well, there might actually be one specific type of self that neuroscientists can prove to be illusory. And that's what is called sometimes the neural self. And so if some neuroscientists are saying that the neural self is located in the right hemisphere, I mean, I'm just looking forward to other neuroscientists going to prove that that is all nonsense. So I mean, if, if it's that kind of debate, I'm very, you know, uh, optimistic, but if it's some of the more metaphysical questions, I mean, I think they are so philosophically loaded that I don't think this is really a question that can be decided on the basis of empirical. And just briefly, I want to bring Lisa in, but I want to just ask you that, that to respond quickly to what Anders was, was saying about the other strand about everything is conscious, the kind of panpsychic. Mm -hmm. Is that something um, you can... Yeah, but I, but I, okay, but I just think, I mean, uh, so this might be me who is confusing, but I just think that, you know, the hard problem of consciousness is really an orthogonal question to whether the self is, is, is real. I mean, so I, I really think these are two different issues. And I mean, you might, it all depends on, your, your take on, on consciousness. I mean, so, I mean, you might de defend what, I mean, terminologically is called a, an ecological account of consciousness or a non-ecological account of consciousness. Do you, so do you think that consciousness necessarily comes with kind of selfishness from the start or is the fundamental status of consciousness somehow these anonymous experiences and then selfhood are somehow added on top if certain other conditions are, in place. So, I mean, that's a very fundamental divide. And I think, you know, again, if, say, you were def defending the anonymity view, uh, then you could be a panpsychist. 
at the same time, and it wouldn't really say, it, it wouldn't mean, it wouldn't tell us anything significant about selfhood, because even if consciousness were pervasive in the universe, I mean, again, no, no uh, implication for whether or not selves are real or not. I mean, so I, so I just think it's two, it's two different issues. Uh, on, on, yes, on, I mean, Lisa, thank you, Dan. And Lisa, bringing you in on this idea again in your work about sort of delusions sometimes being productive. And I was thinking about the, you know, that idea that the self is illusion, that, that some, uh, the self is an illusion that some neuroscientists advance. Um, isn't that quite a depressing thing to believe and so therefore even if we do believe it's an illusion don't we want our illusions to be kind of beneficial and uh you know inducing a sort of state of happiness i mean so maybe is that also a kind of argument against that possible thesis or yeah. is it, sorry Karen. Yeah, no, no sorry that, that that's a really good question and i guess it brings us a little bit back to the previous question as well. You know, to some extent, self-deniers uh, behave exactly the same as uh, self-believers, right? So they will defend their actions. They will talk about their plans. Um, and, and, and so if we are focusing on this kind of sense of self that I was describing, even people who think that the self is an illusion will engage in all those behaviors that seem to characterize people who have a sense of self. Um, now, the next point is to say, is it a good thing to have a sense of self, even if the sense of self that we have is to some extent illusory because it doesn't really match with, with reality. Um, and it's definitely a good thing. Um, it's a good thing psychologically and it's a good thing epistemically um, because it's very important for creatures like us um, to think of ourselves as unified, to think of ourselves as having control over our environment. When we start thinking that we lack control, um, helplessness uh, comes in. And helplessness is actually one of the very few things that are in common among all cases of mental illness. So the sense that you can't control uh, what happens in your life, the sense that uh, things happen and you can't do anything about them. So sometimes what psychologists call the illusion of control uh, is an illusion. Sometimes I expect that I will be able to in intervene in my physical and social environment in decisive ways and actually what I do makes no difference. But the fact that I believe that I can make a difference um, is really good for me psychologically. It makes me think of myself as an agent and behave more like an agent. So make plans, for instance, and think about myself as a force among many forces that are operating in, in the shared environment. Now, this brings us to what Dan and Anders were talking about, the role of neuroscience and psychology when we're thinking about these philosophical questions. And I think that it is, I think, misleading to expect neuroscience and psychology to solve fundamental philosophical questions. That's not what they want to do or what, you know, they have their kind of competence and instruments to do. But I also think that philosophers should work within the constraints of the best available psychological neuroscientific theories when these are relevant to the fundamental questions that they are exploring. So if I am exploring moral responsibility and, you know, how much the self has a role there, I am, I think, a person who should be reading about neuroscience and what neuroscience has to say about free will, even if the way they use the expression free will, as Dan was saying, is likely to be very different from how traditionally philosophers have used it. Thank you. I think that's a wonderful entente cordial at the end between um, philosophy and neuroscience. Thank you very much. All that remains for me to do is to thank you all very much for watching and to thank our brilliant panel, Lisa Bortolotti, 
Anders Sandberg and Dan Zahavi. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers.